I still got my guy. Kirill's a thrill. I, I've been on this guy since the beginning of the year. His KHL numbers are just ridiculous. And he's just continued to do that in the NHL. And if you're whining about the fact of his age and blah, 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 there should be a cutoff, shut up. I don't like it. I don't want anything to do with it. Episode 14 of the Familists. We've got a good show for you today. Very hockey focused. We're going to be taking a look at some stories from the first round so far of the playoffs. We've gotten into some really intense hockey. It started right off the bat. Usually you don't see this level of intensity until games three and four where they really, really count. But I think because teams have been facing them facing the same teams all year, that intensity started right off the bat. So there's lots of good storylines happening in hockey right now. And then we're going to slide over and take a look at the NHL awards, and we're going to give you our picks for who's going to win the awards. But then we're also, also going to flip the script a little bit and give you our picks for the opposite of the award. So the least valuable players on a team the worst defenseman on the team, the worst defensive forwards, all of the general NHL awards will give you the opposite of that. So why don't we get into it and we can start talking about some of some of the storylines that are happening and we're seeing that we're seeing unfold in round one. Uh, the biggest one I think that we saw in the first game was Craig Anderson coming in to save the Caps. So, I still can't believe this happened. Craig Anderson has a, a thing for creating storylines in the playoffs. Obviously, he played lights out for the Senators when his uh, wife was battling cancer. Then he comes in after being on the taxi squad for Washington all year, not playing games, and manages to steal them a game in playoffs. you got to remember that they were planning on having Henry Lundquist Craig Anderson was an emergency backup plan, and you can't be any less than thrilled for him and what he's done, uh, given the amount of opportunity he's had this season. Yeah, and I mean, look, looking at the situation, it's funny to see that Craig Anderson is your third goalie in Washington now, right? Because they've got Samsonov and they've got Vitek Vanacek or whatever. Yeah, Vanacek, yeah. Um, so they've got those two guys that have been playing. They've been playing a pretty 50-50 split all season, right? And Anderson hasn't played all year. So for him to come in, was it about 10 minutes into the first period of round one, game one playoffs? And he won them the game. Yeah, he won the game at... And the other thing is he did he did lose the second game, but there were some really big defensive lapses uh, by the Caps, and specifically John Carlson, who's a guy that you can't afford to have make mistakes if the Caps are going to go deep in playoffs. So Greg Anderson, after coming off the taxi squad, has given the Capitals a chance to win in every game he's been involved in. He got absolutely shelled in that second game. There was a lot of defensive lapses, like you said. Like, he took 48 shots in that game and only let four goals. So, even though, yeah, they still lost the game, 
he didn't play that bad based on what we saw in front of him. He, he seemed to, like, obviously the guy hadn't had very much experience this year. He got better throughout that game. When, when he started playing in the first game, I was like, oh, my God, it looks like he hasn't played all year. And I was really concerned that it was just going to be a blowout. Uh, obviously, like I said earlier, Craig Anderson has a pretty good storyline, so I have a little bit of a soft spot for the guy. And I really didn't want to see it go that way. And see what he came in and did, it really did. Uh, it deserves all the attention that it's getting right now. Yeah, and I guess that's what you get from a veteran goalie like that. Like, yeah, maybe he's lost a few strides over the years, but he still he can find his game on a dime like that. Like, you can throw him into a situation like that, and he's going to react well to throw it back to the Leafs. That's why I'm not as worried about Freddie Anderson coming in if he needs to come in to a Game 3 or a Game 4 situation. I'm not as worried about it because he has that veteran presence and he has that sort of mindset of, okay, this is my chance to put the team on my back. And, and I mean, Craig Anderson did that. And I think Freddie Anderson could do that too, if needed. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I think that the NHL is moving closer and closer to a two goalie system. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. Uh, but that's where it seems to be going for me. It's just goaltending is too much of a priority for your team to be successful for you to just throw away the playoff run because you lost your, your starting goalie. And I think that you're seeing that across the league, more teams considering, uh, tandems and different things like that and, and bringing in veteran goalies, uh, in the second and third string spot because, you just can't afford to throw away a good season when, when your starting goalie goes down. And we did see a lot of that over the past five years, and I, I think you're watching that change in front of our eyes. Yeah, and I think one one team that's really embodying that two-goal, three or two-goalie, three-goalie system right now is Carolina. So we can look at their system, and they've got Mrazek, Reimer, and Ned. Nadelkovich or whatever whatever the hell his name is, but we'll call him Ned because that's easy. <laughs> um, and right now they're riding Ned, this young goalie that has come into the playoffs and got a shutout the other night. Now he's got a great team in front of him and that helps, but now Carolina has a really like a really solid one, two, three goalie system. Yeah, this team is built for a big playoff run, especially in that. I think there needs to be something said about their system, that they've been able to implement three different goalies and continue to be as effective as they've been. Um, but that's no discredit to the goalies. Obviously, you don't earn a shutout just because your team plays a good system. So you got to have your game and you got to have your head on your shoulders and and that's what we've seen from all the Carolina Hurricanes goaltending this year. I couldn't believe what you were seeing out of James Reimer uh, at the end of the season. And I think there's just so many good things going on in Carolina. And because of their market and because of how much we're seeing the North Division this year, they're a really slept-on team. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, they've gone 2-0 and in this playoff series so far. They're, I mean, they're playing Nashville, who... 
isn't the best team, but Nashville's been hot. They finished the end of the regular season with, I think, seven wins in ten games. So ten and seven and three. Yeah, that is a huge run, too, on the way into playoffs. Yeah, so they're coming off of a hot streak, and Carolina has been able to just cool them right off. And Najelkovic has been a big part of that. Yeah, he's a great young goalie, and I think that's a big part of the future in Carolina. They have a great team, and if he lives up to the expectations that they have for him, they're going to have a great team for a long time because they have a lot of really good pieces in place. Yeah, another team with a few really solid young pieces that we're seeing play really well this year is Minnesota. So with that, sticking with the goalie, Cam Talbot, not so young, but he played unreal in the first game. Got the shutout against Vegas, who is no one expected that. I think Vegas, most people expected Vegas to just absolutely drop bombs on Cam Talbot, but he seems to have had a bit of a resurgence for one game to old style Cam Talbot. Yeah, Cam Talbot, when he's on, is a great goalie in the National Hockey League. He just doesn't really have that consistency that you need from a starter. And it's a real shame because when the, when the guy is playing at his highest level, he's a really lights-out goaltender. I felt really bad for him at the end of the game. He's had the game of his life in playoffs in the first game, and they're asking him what it's like to play across from a goalie like Marc-Andre Fleury that made some of the saves that that he made after the game that he just had. It's like, hello, like, do you even realize what I just did on my end of the ice? Like, Marc-Andre Fleury is obviously a way bigger name. But I think that's part of the reason why you have to acknowledge what Cam Talbot did in game one, is he's not a stalwart goalie that you've heard about for the past 15 years. You know, you hear about him a little bit. He gets on a hot streak. He gets cold. You don't hear about him. I think that's why you got to acknowledge that what he did in game one and how much of a dominant performance that is. And if Minnesota wants to hang around in this series, they're going to need Cam Talbot to play at that level consistently. And I don't think that that is sustainable. But you only got to win four games to win a playoff series. And Cam Talbot's shown that on any given night, he can be at the level of a dominant goalie in the NHL. Yeah, and I, I mean, he did, I think that's where, that's the problem with it, is that, yes, he had this one fantastic lights-out game, but then in game two, he let in, what, three goals? And didn't look as good. Like, he had a sub-900 save percentage in game two. So there's that level of consistency that, the the wild need to see out of cam talbot otherwise i could see them switching switching back and using kakinen another young up-and-coming goalie and honestly kakinen had some really good kind of streaks of starts throughout this season uh without him minnesota wouldn't be where they are so i wouldn't be too concerned about going to him it's not like cam talbot has been so good this season that you couldn't consider going the other way no, no, that's another team that has a really solid one-two pair. I find it really interesting looking at the majority of the teams in the playoff this year, in the playoffs this year, and not a lot of them have a solid number one. 
a lot of a lot of the teams could go either way. One game they can play one goalie, the next game they can play the next, and it, it really is showing how the the league is changing like that. Like there's maybe five teams in the playoffs that have a guaranteed number one starter. Yeah, and actually the funny part of this storyline to me is that Vegas said they were going to rotate goalies, and Marc-Andre Fleury has played so well that I don't think you're going to see it. If he continues to play like this, there's no way that DeBoer can make that move and put Leonard in. Like, you, if Marc-Andre Fleury is playing at this level, you have to roll with him. And it's funny, a team that's been rolling two goalies all year, uh, Marc-Andre Fleury is, is taking the net in Vegas uh, by force, and he's going to force them to let him play until he proves that he can't. Yeah, and you got to ride the hot hand, right? Um, that's what it comes down to, especially in the playoffs. If a goalie's getting you wins... Keep him in the net. Yeah, I agree. You just can't argue with wins. You know, if you're losing a game in overtime, maybe you switch uh, just to kind of catch everybody's attention and get the team woken up a little bit. But if he's getting you wins, you just can't argue with the results. And that's kind of what Marc-Andre Fleury is doing so far. Yeah. And I think it's, it's incredible that Fleury is in his 15th straight playoff appearance. Like, like year over year, he is always good enough that his team gets into the playoffs. And I think that a lot of that does fall on his shoulders. Yes, he's been on good teams, but a good team may not make it to the playoffs if they don't have a good goalie. And he is consistently a great goalie. Yeah, he's just a great goalie. And the other thing is he flew under the radar maybe a little bit with his star power in Pittsburgh, even though he's a high pick, because there's just so many stars there. And and goalies, you know, they're not that flashy unless they're getting shutouts every night. And I don't think that was possible with how Pittsburgh was structured when Fleury was there. So I think you're really seeing him get his due as a star in the NHL since he's went to Vegas. More people have really realized exactly what Marc-Andre Fleury brings night in and night out. Yeah, so you mentioned the star power of the Penguins. That seems like a good spot that we could talk about that a little bit. So right now that Penguins-Islander series, as we record, is one-to-one. But the Penguins have been playing without Evgeny Malkin, and he's one of their big stars. He's slated to come back um, in their next game. So I'm curious how that is going to impact that series. Um, Because I think that could have a big impact on not only how the series goes, but how the Islanders system changes a little bit to account for that extra skill on the front, on the top lines. I think this spells trouble for the Islanders, to be honest. They're having a hard time matching up with the top line of Pittsburgh. When you watch the game, they're spending a lot. If, If the top line is spending the majority of Pittsburgh's offensive zone time or like setup time in the zone and Malkin just adds more depth. It's going to make it harder for them to match up, not easier. And I think if Malkin can come and play the way he plays in playoffs, which is pretty physical actually for a guy who's thought to be 
very skilled. This guy's mean. He's a big boy, and he knows how to deliver a hard hit. He's just not going out of the way to hunt it down. But in playoffs, you've seen this guy. If you give him the opportunity to lay you out, he's going to take advantage of it every time. And he's really good at it. He's got the size. He's got the hockey IQ to really make an impact both physically and offensively. Yeah, and I feel like he's the kind of player that still has enough speed that he uses his legs to make the hit. It's not like he's just a big body. He's able to power down the ice to really to really connect with that hit. Yeah, I 100% agree. I just think that sometimes people get caught up in the fact that he's a skill guy. He's a really big skill guy, especially for today's NHL. And um, it's crazy to think that he might be able to be more physical at an older age, but the reality is when he came into the league, the league was a lot tougher. This guy is now one of the most skilled big bodies in the league, and I wouldn't say that he necessarily was considered a big body when he first came into the league. So you, you can see him impose himself physically more over the past three years than you did early on in his career, even though he's getting up there in age. Yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right about that. But the good thing about the Islanders is that they've got a few big bodies of their own to to hammer back if they need to. Like, Matt Martin has played so much. I haven't actually looked at his um, time on the ice, but even just watching game one, it seemed like Matt Martin was on the ice the entire time just because they wanted to set the tone and they wanted to make sure they had that physical presence out there all the time to to try and command the game and control the pace of the game. And it worked in game one. I didn't actually watch game two, yeah. so I'm not sure, but um, it definitely did have an effect on game one, having him out there all the time. I agree. It felt like Matt Martin was out there the whole time. That line is super intimidating. I don't, I don't know what kind of credit you're supposed to give them because like guys like that just don't get, the media attention but oh my god I would not want to play against those guys every night no like the guy that's gonna match up with those guys consistently for seven games is like wow if we get out of this series Matt Barn took a chunk out of me no matter what yeah and I think this is a series that's a really big battle I'm kind of an Islanders hater they're pretty boring to watch I, I didn't like how they handled Tavares leaving I'm actually kind of a Josh Bailey fan, so I so I watch them a little bit, but I just their style of play is so boring, and I honestly I think it's best for the playoffs if Pittsburgh wins the series. I think it might be best too if it'd be great if Pittsburgh and Washington were to win and have that um, renew that uh, that rivalry between Crosby and Ovechkin now that they're later in their careers, but. I still think that the Islanders have a chance to take this series. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really tight series. Uh, like you said, though, I'd really love to see that Caps-Penguins one last time. You never know how stuff goes. So this might be one of our last chances at it. It would be really cool to see. Um, so talking about really physical matchups, uh, one series that has been that seems to have been a little more physical than the rest is the battle of Florida game one. We saw a few huge hits 
I almost said McKinnon. That's not his name. Um, McDonough had a huge hit earlier in the game that didn't get called. And then later in game one, Sam Bennett had a hit that got called and he ended up getting suspended a, uh, one game for. So what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Honestly, I don't know what Sam Bennett was thinking. That's a horrible hit. Just can't happen. Guys got to protect themselves more in the NHL. I don't know when this stuff started happening, but I remember hearing kids getting screamed at when my brother was playing minor hockey that, yes, guys can't hit you from behind, but you got to protect yourself. And I'm seeing less and less of that these days. That was a bad hit. I have no, no doubt in my mind that Sam Bennett should be suspended, but you have to be aware of the position you put yourself in on the ice. And I'm seeing less and less of that, and it's kind of scary. A hit from behind uh, is a bad play, but both players have to be involved in taking that out of the game. And part of that is awareness on the offensive player. And I don't know uh, when this transition started, but it's something that really does have to stop. Yeah, that's, I think, as much as, like, yeah, a hit from behind is bad, what made it worse is that he powered across half the ice surface to make that hit. Like, he really, he charged towards him. He knew that he was going to hit him from behind. He had that intent. And that's where it becomes a really dirty hit and a really kind of a sketchy, a sketchy decision by Sam Bennett to to go ahead with that hit. Like, you got to stop up first and then just push him in that situation. If he's not paying attention, you can't, charge across the ice and make the hit because then you're just smashing him into the boards and you know that it's a dirty hit. You know you're probably going to get suspended for it. But to do it anyway, I guess, is just the the heat of the moment and the physicality of that of that series is what led to that decision. The other disappointing thing for me, especially if I'm Bennett, is he's a playoff player. If Calgary could have got what they got to him in playoffs all season, every season, they would still have him. He would still be a Calgary Flames, and the Calgary Flames might be a playoff team right now. So if Sam Bennett wants to rebuild his image, he probably only has a maximum of seven games against the Tampa Bay Lightning because I don't think Florida makes it out of this series to prove to other NHL teams that He's a player you want on your roster, and he just subtracted one of the games where he's most effective by taking the suspension. Yeah. He's a great player in playoffs, and I just – this is a horrible decision uh, on his part. Like, he really had a big opportunity here. He was putting up points, playing in the top six. Now he's playing in the games where he's most effective, and he has a lapse of judgment, and he gets suspended, and – that kind of erases some of the positive things that have been happening for him since he got to Florida. So I am kind of disappointed if I'm Sam Bennett. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Although I don't know that he's trying to sell himself to other teams right now. Um, I get the feeling that he wants to stay in Florida and I think Florida will find the money for him um, next season. I have a feeling he's going to resign there. Elliot Friedman had him on 31 Thoughts last week. And just the way he was talking about how Joel Quenville runs the system and how he really got an opportunity in Florida to play his style of game 
I think that it sounds like he wants to stay there and might might make that happen, which I think that could be good for his career because then he has an a full actual season next next year to prove himself with a team that's going to put him in situations that work for his style of play. Whereas he didn't have that in uh, Calgary at all. They were trying to change how he played rather than put him into a system that worked with him. Yeah, I just don't think he ranked high enough on, on Calgary's depth chart in order for you to build a system around him. So he goes to Florida and he fits in the system and you're, and you're seeing that he's an effective NHL player. And you're right. I think it's probably the right decision for him to stay. Obviously, that ball's in Florida's court, and things can change fast. If he has a slow start to next season, uh, people's opinions can change quickly. But right now, the Florida Panthers and Bennett look like a, a match made in heaven, and hopefully he can come off this suspension and have more of a positive impact on his team. Yep, I want to think that he will. So, speaking of suspensions... We haven't heard that there's going to be a suspension yet, but in last night's game, Kadri made another dumbass move. It was a blatant hit to the head against Falk. He's likely going to be suspended. The question is how many games. I just don't know with this guy. Yeah, I honestly, like that's super frustrating, and he's definitely getting suspended. You got people calling for lifetime bans on Twitter, so I guess maybe there's a chance he slips through like Tom Wilson, <laughs> but I think he, he's guaranteed getting suspended. To me, not only was that hit to the head, but it was kind of late. Like, the shot had already been taken. He comes from the blind side. Like, there's a lot of mistakes there by Kadri. And he's on a team this year who it's basically top or bust. I really don't think he can handle the pressure playoffs. I just think that his wires cross and it makes him uh, an irresponsible player. And I don't know what you do with the guy at this point. Like, obviously, playoffs are what it's all about. And if if he's not an effective player in the playoffs, then, then I don't really know where he thinks his career is going to go. And honestly... Being a Leaf fan, Nathan Kadri's a great player. I'm not going to tell you he's not. Yeah. I love what he brings. I love how he was able to reinvent himself and become a different player in order to make himself an NHL player. I just don't know where it goes from here. Yeah, like, that. I, I don't know. Because, like, how many years in a row has he been suspended in the playoffs now? Is this is this his second or his third year? Or was he he's no, been suspended he, in two straight years at the Leafs, right? Yeah. And then this year at Colorado. So yep. that's three years, just not in a row. Yeah, so I'm curious how the league is going to react to that, too. Like, not even just Kadri. I would assume Kadri's taking shit from his agent about it already because it makes him really hard to sell. But, like, how the league is going to react to this because technically the repeat offender rule is 18 months so after 18 months they wipe the slate clean so in theory Kadri's not a repeat offender but when you look at his career it's clear that he is 
so I wonder how the league is going to enforce that rule, like how they react to that with this suspension. I bet. He better hope he doesn't get something similar to what he got with the Leafs because I really think that screwed him. Like yeah. when they basically said, "Listen, you can come back when this series is over because you clearly can't conduct yourself within this series." If that happens again um, in Colorado, their their depth down the middle is a little bit weaker than you would think of a team that is this strong. So if they lose him, like, I'm worried about their ability to be the team that everyone thinks they're going to be. Yeah, he's and a really important part of their bottom six. Yeah, then their window, their window is wide open right now. But windows close way faster than everyone realizes. Like, when your window's open, you're like, oh, we got lots of years. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wow. Where did all that time go? And Colorado kind of let a year get away last year with their goalie thing. I'm still not really sure I'm sold on their goaltending this year. So something needs to happen there. They need to take advantage of this opportunity while they have it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what that means for Kadri, but because he is, he's great during the season. Like he's, he's like solid third second third line guy during the season but yeah come playoffs when he's reacting like that you just can't have him on your team it's just funny to me like he's a very self-aware player with the way he changed his game in order to be more effective that takes some awareness listen i can't score if i'm a certain distance from the net Listen, I'm not going to be a high-end skilled player in the NHL. I'm going to have to change that around and try to bring something else. Like, the guy is a cerebral hockey player, and all, and then you get the playoffs, and I just I don't know where his brain's at. Maybe he's got to take up some meditation or something. Just get, get himself zoned in yeah. the zone for, for playoffs. Yeah, he's the only guy you want to calm down before a playoff <laughs> game. Yeah. You get your entire team fired up, but then you put him in a separate locker room just with, like, spa sounds and a massage, like, massage Boys, you're getting fired up. you got to send Kadri (laughs) to another room so that he relaxes. Yeah. Yeah. The third goalie, Kadri, an assistant coach. (laughs) Yeah. They have the, like, tranquility room. Yeah, he needs it. All right. Was there any other storylines happening that have started in this first round that you wanted to talk about? The one I wanted to slip in was uh, was about Vegas, and we did manage to slip it in, so I think we're good to go. All right, cool. So let's uh, move on from the playoffs, and let's talk about the NHL awards that are obviously awarded at the end of the season. We're starting to get the legitimate nomination list coming out, but Brett and I figured that we could give our picks now because most of the awards – I think are pretty set in stone. Like the heart, you know, it's going to McDavid, the Norris. There's a little bit of a question. The Vesna is pretty set in stone. The Calder is pretty set in stone. I would think unless you have a hot take, but so let's, uh, let's get into it. Who's your heart pick. So my heart pick is obviously McDavid. I really don't think there's much to be said about that. Like the only case you could have made 
for McDavid not being the heart winner with the season he had is if somehow the Oilers managed to miss the playoffs. But they did. They're in. That's what the season's all about. He led his team to the playoffs. And if he's gonna, if they're going to get past the first round, he's going to have to leave them there too. So McDavid's just a clear heart winner. The guy put up a ridiculous amount of points in 56 games. Honestly, we might never see something like that ever again. So I hope you took it in. Yep, I've got McDavid getting the heart as well. I think there, you could maybe make an argument that Crosby has been really important for his team, but just not as important as McDavid. He has, he's just had an unreal season, and I think there's no no question that he is the lock to be the heart winner. Okay, so going from the best forward to the best defenseman, who do you have getting getting the Norris? So I have Hedman. A lot of people are saying Fox, but plain and simple, like what I was saying earlier, uh, the Rangers aren't in the playoffs. So how much of an impact did Fox really have? Uh, that's pretty much up for debate. Um, sure, he put up some points, and he, he ate a lot of minutes for them, but... I would also think that a guy like Tony D'Angelo, even though he's a super skilled player, uh, entirely subtracting himself for the, from the lineup, kind of opens up minutes that somebody has to take. Uh, it's great that Fox was able to do that for the Rangers, but I think he put up some of the numbers that he put up this year because they were forced to put him in that situation. And they're not a playoff team, so I, I can't give it to, to Fox. i got to give it to Victor Hedman. I think Victor Hedman's going to get a lot of votes uh, from people who only really watch their division this year because uh, he's just one of those guys. That when you think of the Norris Trophy, you think of Victor Hedman. The same way Patrice Bergeron will probably be in the running for the Selkie as long as he still wears an NHL jersey. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, uh, Hedman is just sort of a perennial Norris candidate. I did go with Adam Fox. I think that based on the fact that, like you said, they were down to defensemen, Fox really rose to the occasion and helped this team out. Yes, they didn't make the playoffs, but I think this is a year that they could make the exception that that's not the end-all be-all of winning the Norris. I think that this guy had a really great year and made a significant impact on his team, regardless of how the season ended. Fox deserves that that Norris, and he's definitely in the running. I think you might be right that Hedman will probably win it, just because if people aren't paying attention, Hedman's the easy name to vote for. But I think Fox should get it over Hedman. Yeah, there, there's a case there. I definitely agree with that. All right, let's... Keep going down the lineup to the Vesna. Uh, I've got Vasilevsky. I would assume you have the same because if you don't, then I question your hockey knowledge because he has been absolutely unreal this year. No other goalie has even come close to what he's done. Yeah, honestly, you got to give it to him. I, I actually did some digging around a little bit to see if I could give some sort of hot take because I kind of knew that we were both going to pick Vasilevsky, but plain and simple, the guy is just the best goalie, and you don't usually see 
Like, it's crazy to think how long he's been in the league and you could still sit there and say that you don't normally see goalies his age be as dominant as he's being right now. He's already won a Stanley Cup, and he's been hanging around in the league for a while. He just, he's super fun to watch. He makes saves that you can't imagine him making. He does play on a really good team, but that's part of being a goalie. you got to play on a good team to put up good numbers, and, and that's what he does every year. Yeah. And he plays on a good team, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get shots. It's not like he's getting 20 shots a night. He still does face a significant amount of shots and stops the majority of them. Yeah, 100%. All right, so who do you have for the Calder, the Rookie of the Year? I think we probably have the same guy, and I would imagine most people have the same guy. So I still got my guy. Kirill is a thrill. I've been on this guy since the beginning of the year. His KHL numbers are just ridiculous. And he's just continued to do that in the NHL. And if you're whining about the fact of his age and blah, 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 there should be a cutoff, shut up. I don't like it. I don't want anything to do with it. No other league is like the NHL. We talk about it all the time. And then when a guy comes in and he's not 19 or 18 years old, you want to say that he's not rookie of the year because he came out of another league. Well, plain and simple, these other leagues aren't as good. We talk about it all the time. And if you don't think that Kirill Kaprasov is the caller winner, you probably cheer for a team where you have a guy, you're probably a Sens fan where you want it to go to Timothy Stutzel, and you're trying to make an argument that Kirill Kaprasov isn't 18, but that's not part of the rules and st- until it is, your argument sucks, and you're not paying attention. Couldn't have said it more eloquently myself. I agree. Got to go to Kirill. Yeah, it's just, I like, I can't stand that argument about the age. Like, it's not, it's not part of the criteria. So, like, people go on about it. They went on about it with Panarin. You know, Panarin's still a stud, so I would say that it was a good decision. There's a lot of guys that win the call there as 18-year-olds. They go on to me, nobodies. Yeah. Yep, for sure. All right. Um, so let's go to the Selkie, the best defensive forward in the league. You kind of mentioned it earlier. So who's who do you have? So this one was actually a real big toss-up for me between Mark Stone and Barkoff. And I went with Barkoff because nobody expected this team to be this good this year. Uh for a couple years now, you're hearing that Barkov's one of the most underrated players in the NHL. I don't necessarily think that's true. I just think that the casual hockey fan doesn't watch very many Florida Panthers games. And I think this guy's uh, done a lot of things that have made him earn an individual award, and he hasn't got one because he doesn't get the media attention. And and uh, this year's the year. His team's a playoff team. I don't think anyone can sit there and say that they're a loaded team. So Barkov's my guy for the Selkie. All right. Sounds good. I like that. Barkov probably deserves it. I had a hard time picking someone for the Selkie based on the fact that realistically, to be able to properly gauge a defensive forward, you have to really watch the games because you have to see them rushing back you have to see them fighting in the corners you have to see them blocking passes those aren't statistics that you can just look up as much right like 
obviously if you want to do a really deep dive you can you can look those up but for the casual viewer judging a defensive forward comes based on watching the games so for me I with that in mind I went with Mitch Marner just because he's a player I know he's been unreal defensively this year he's been really really solid except for three on three situations but whatever we won't talk about those he's always three, back three on three in the playoffs yeah exactly no three on three in the playoffs you're right yeah and I just I think that he's he's a player that no matter where on the ice you're looking you probably see him because he's all over the ice. He's got his stick in every play. He's got his body in every play. He got a lot more physical this year than he did or than he had been in the past. He put on a little bit of weight in the offseason, and I think that that's big for him. And maybe he's not the best in the league, but in my mind, he gets the Selkie. All right, so who do you have uh, for your Lady Bing runner? My Lady Bing. What do, who did I have for the Lady Bing? Um, so I, I went with Nate McKinnon. I went with the low hanging fruit on this one. It's the, he won it last year. It's easy to, to pick him as a back-to-back winner because he is, he's just a a good guy on the ice. He's a, a gentleman. Um, he represents the game well, and that's what it comes down to with the lady bang, right? So, uh, uh, you got to be a homer last game or last question, so I'm going to be a homer for this question. I'm going to go with Austin Matthews. You never see the guy in the penalty box, yet he plays in every situation for the Leafs. He's out there taking key draws. There's lots of times he could probably take a penalty, but he, instead you see him work his ass off and try to do his best to avoid being in those situations. The guy puts up a ridiculous amount of points, He's, he eats minutes, and he doesn't take penalties. Plain and simple, I, I think Austin Matthews gets overlooked for this award, and he has a lot of impact as far as bringing uh, American viewers to uh, from non-traditional markets uh, eyes to the game. I really think there's a lot of things you can make a case for Austin Matthews to be the Lady Bing winner. All right, I can get behind that. Anything that's... Uh... Pro Leaf, I can always get behind. My right. other, I was actually going to lean towards giving it to McDavid because you see that a lot with yeah. a guy that um, puts up a ton of points and he doesn't take a lot of penalty minutes. My one argument for Matthews over McDavid is you just don't see Matthews wires cross and him take a stupid penalty or make a questionable play. You you do kind of see a little bit of that from Connor McDavid. Yeah. He does get frustrated. He does kind of do uh, some things that aren't necessarily super sportsmanlike. And I think that's where you kind of got to you draw the line and you take him out of that conversation. Yeah, I think McDavid has elbows and he knows how to use them. Um, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. And not that like that's a terrible thing. Like It's not like he's getting penalties for throwing elbows very often. But he does. He's not afraid to jab you in the ribs with his with his elbow, right? And that's it's just part of the game. Yeah, it's totally fair. Yeah. So, who do you have for the King Clancy, the leadership on and off the ice? So I actually kind of went unconventional on this one, and I took 
all the old guys for the Leafs. I just think they've entirely changed the culture. I couldn't pick one that I thought deserved it more than the others. But they've just completely changed the vibe of this team. And there's also something to be said about former stars coming in and being willing to downgrade their roles in order to have an impact. I don't think Jason Spezza, when he gets drafted second overall, ever saw him as the fourth-line center taking key defensive draws. I don't think Joe Thornton or Wayne Simmons ever saw that about themselves either, but their willingness to do that for the benefit of the team really has caught my attention this year, and you've seen them kind of change the vibe of the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because my uh, King Clancy winner was Jason Spezza. <laughs> uh, I think same idea. He came in, had a really big impact on this team last year, an even bigger impact on the team this year. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing that did it for me was his idea to send the money to all the AHL players to share the wealth because that's huge. Like the AHL guys are really suffering this year. And a lot of them are as much as like, it seems like it's such a minor thing. Cause yeah, they're professional hockey players. AHL players don't make that much money. Realistically, most contracts are, around the same amount of money that the average person would earn. Obviously there's there they get more incentives, but there's still there's some players out there that just aren't making much money this year. So so that was big for him to to stand up and and go to all the guys on the team and say, "Hey, let's support our our family basically." And I think that's a it's a big leadership move and that's something that's off the ice and that on the ice obviously he's generally plays with the younger guys on the fourth line. He's a really good role model for them. I think we saw that with Brooks. We saw that with Engvall. Anytime that they've played together, they play better with Spezza. And I think that largely comes from his leadership. And another thing that stood out to me is, I think it was the second last game or maybe the third last game that the Leafs played. In the offensive zone, we saw Spezza, Thornton, and Brooks about to take a face-off. Thornton got thrown out of the dot. Generally, Spezza would stay in or step in, but he looked at Brooks and said, no, you take this one. And it gives that sort of, it's that like fatherly role almost. And, and that's that's been huge on the Leafs this year. And I think it's a big part of the leadership that Spezza shows. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting five years from now when people are going on about certain guys on the Leafs being great leaders as veterans, they've had a lot of really good veterans around them. And I see these guys developing into great leaders because of it. Like uh, there's even a lot of older guys now that you don't see. Like you had your Tyler Bozaks and your JVRs and, and uh, Patrick Marlowe. There's a lot of great leaders that have made their way through this dressing room while these players are young, and I think it's going to be really cool to see these guys um, become more leaders themselves as they mature and as some of these older guys kind of work their way out of the team. Yeah. All right, so we're down to the Bill Masterson Award for Overcoming Adversity. Who do you have for that one? I have 
Jack Campbell for this, actually. And I'm like, we have quite the Leafs team going on here, but Jack Campbell's probably the most deserving of all the awards I've given to a Leaf uh, in this segment. It's been a long time since Jack Campbell was a first-round pick, but there was a lot of expectations for this guy. He dominated for the U.S. and the World Juniors. He looked like he was on a straight line path to being a dominant NHL starting goalie. And he's just becoming a starting goalie at the age he is now, almost 10 years later. A lot of guys would have gotten frustrated, would have gotten beaten down, would be somewhere in Europe making a good paycheck, thinking, you know, this didn't go my way, but I have a really, uh, like, I'm making good money, and I've had a good career. This guy has tried to reinvent himself over and over, while being one of the best guys on the Toronto Maple Leafs, as far as attitude, and that's just, the fact that you can go through what he's gone through and still have this great attitude that he brings to the Leafs every night, I think that deserves the award in its own, on its own. And he, he has been formally nominated for it. I did, when I was looking through the nomination list for the um, Masterson Award, the one name that stood out to me was Rupe Hintz. Maybe just because I had him on my fantasy team and I, I liked how he played, but it between all of the COVID situation that went on in Dallas this year and with him fighting a persistent groin injury all year, he was in and out of the lineup, but regardless of how much he was dealing with, when he was in the lineup, he was a stud. Like he played so well and got me so many fantasy points every third game when he actually played. And I think that's, that stands to show just how skilled this guy is that he was playing the entire season through an injury through all the COVID situations that Dallas dealt with. Um, I don't know that he's going to get it just because of, like you said, with like uh, making the playoffs and things like that. But I think that he's deserving of it. Um, and I think a case could be made for, for hints getting the Masterson. Yeah, definitely. Uh, We've seen a lot of guys get it when they've come back from something catastrophic. But there is a case to be made there where he's battled through this injury and been effective. Obviously, this didn't go the way that the Dallas Stars would have wanted. But the guy's a warrior. Like, he's doing this for regular season games. I wonder how injured he'd be willing to play for a playoff game. Yeah. So let's get off the ice and let's talk about coaching and GM. So let's go with the Jack Adams, the coach of the year. For this one, I've got Joel Quenville. I think what he's done in Florida can be seen very clearly in this playoff series, how much fight they have. And I don't know that many people expected Florida to be as good as they are right now. But they're fantastic. I mean, obviously they're down in the series, but through the entire regular season, they were in the top of the standings the entire season. And I think that is largely because of how Joel Quenville has coached this group of guys that um, they're sort of a ragtag group of players that they picked off of off from other teams that were like third line players on other teams that they've thrown onto the first line, like Anthony Duclair and 
they've really stood out. Um, and I think that that is largely because of the system that Quenville has built in Florida. I think you're 100% right. He's also my guy. Uh, the other thing about Quenville that really amazes me, you're right, he has a good system. He's also really good at identifying what players bring to the table instead of identifying what they don't bring to the table. After years of uh, Mike Babcock as a Leafs fan, and I'm not necessarily a Mike Babcock hater, but the guy was really good at picking out what guys couldn't do. Joe Quenville is the exact opposite. He's like, well, you know, this line has a lot of skill and needs some some physical play. We'll, we'll add Sam Bennett. We'll put Duclair in a role where he can play the way he's effective, and we're going to get our bang for the buck out of him as long as he gets the, the puck in the times he needs to have the puck. He's just a really good at you know knowing what players can bring to the table and putting them in situations to be effective. And I don't think a lot of guys can do that. A lot of guys can come in and implement a good system. And, you know, if they bring in some players that, that they like and subtract some other players, within a couple of years they can become the team they want. But Joe Quenville showed us throughout his career, especially in his Chicago time when they're trying to, you know, work around the, the big contracts they have, that he's really good at finding players that will play the roles that he needs them to play and finding ways to make players effective. And, and that's something not every coach can do, and I think that's why Joel Quenville's uh, probably a shoe-in for the Jack Adams. All right, and let's move on to the Jim Gregory, the uh, GM of the year. Who do you have for that? So I have Don Waddell for that. I I love the Carolina Hurricanes this year. We talked about it a little bit earlier. They're a really good team. And they've done similar to what you're saying about Florida. They've been able to snag some pieces off some other teams and make them a really effective. They grabbed Trocek out of Florida, who'd obviously fallen out of favor. They grabbed Brady Shea out of New York. And all these guys have gone back to the, their form and became impact players again. And, this is a great team. Uh, we heard a couple years ago that Carolina went through some ownership trouble and they wanted to cut a lot of costs. So Don Waddell's come in in kind of a weird situation and managed to have a really effective team. And he's only he's kind of just slowly made impact moves. He never really made any uh, made an offseason where there was a ton of additions or a ton of subtractions. He's just kind of slowly targeted their needs, and you're seeing it all come to fruition right now. The only knock on him is that he didn't do a lot this year, so maybe people don't think he necessarily deserves it. But I think because of what he's been able to do over the past three years and how effective you've seen his team, I think it's about time you give him credit for what he's been able to do. Yeah, we're really starting to see the moves that he's made over the past couple of years really present themselves as fantastic moves. Um, and the, the, he's really built a team that plays really well together and seems to have really good chemistry on and off the ice. 
And I think that's a big part about being a GM is not just building a talented team, but building a core that gets along and that works well together and that all has one common goal. I mean, obviously that one common goal is the Stanley Cup, but then like has the same level of drive. And one team that I think has done that really, really well, and I'm going home for this one, is the Toronto Maple Leafs with Kyle Dubas. I think there's no question that he has changed. He he saw his team last year and realized that there were weaknesses and changed that. He filled in the weaknesses along the way, whether it was bringing in veterans last uh, in the offseason and then right through to picking up Felino to uh, fill in that probably second-line spot. There's just been every step of the way he's been addressing any weakness that this team has. He's been finding a way to fill gaps, and I think that's huge. Um, whether or not he wins it, I don't know because he is still a young GM and there's a lot of old guys, old traditional guys that do the voting. But I think that it's he deserves to be in the running. And in my mind, he is the best, if not one of the best GMs in the league. And the way that uh, that he's able to essentially just circumvent the cap and make it seem like that the cap doesn't exist for the Leafs is unbelievable. And I just every time yeah. that he makes a move, they, it's something I'm excited about. So I'm giving uh, the Jim Gregory to Kyle Dubas. I can totally agree with that. Um, Kyle Dubas has kind of taken a minute to really take the reins of the Toronto Maple Leafs. But in the past two years, you've seen him do it. And you've seen what his vision really is. I think everyone went on about you soft players and this and that. Kyle Dubas was there, but Kyle Dubas didn't draft William Nylander. Kyle Dubas didn't draft Mitch Marner. Like, Kyle Dubas is trying to do his best to make this effective with the players that he inherited. And he inherited some good players, but there were some obvious holes that needed to be filled. And since he's really started to take the reins and run with it, he is addressing the problems, just exactly like you said. Yeah. All right, so I guess that wraps up our regular awards. Now we're going to jump back up to the top of the list. We'll flip the script, and we're going to give you the worst players, the least effective players, the worst coach, the worst GM. But we're going to focus just on the North Division for this because it is the division we know. And when you're looking at the worst players, I don't even know who's on the fourth line of San Jose, if I'm being completely honest. So if we were to do the full league, it would be a lot of it, – it makes it a lot harder to find – the worst players because people don't talk about the worst players. Whereas in the North, we watch it, we see who the worst players are and we're able to talk about it a little more. So we are going to focus just on the North for this, this next little bit and let's bash some players and bash some coaches. Let's get into it. I'm actually super excited for this. Like the second we started talking about it, I was like, wow, this is going to be fun. Like it's because, <laughs> You don't necessarily get to bash players because, like, 
if your buddy's a fan of a team, that's the only time you really get to talk about bad teams. And you can't just sit there and rip apart your buddy's team. Like, you can, but there's a there's a point where it's unfair. I'm going to warn everybody before I even get started. Calgary fans, not going to like me at the end of this segment. <laughs> I had a lot of Calgary in mind, and I kind of made some adjustments so that I didn't hate Calgary the entire way along. But, yeah. <laughs> and I will say, totally biased, there's no Leafs on my list. <laughs> Oh, uh, I wanted to make a case for Justin Hall to be on my list because, like, personally, I think he's, like, the most overrated defenseman on the Leafs by a mile. Yeah. But I just couldn't make the case for him being the worst defenseman in the North. No, if he had played how he did in that, like, middle stretch of games where it was really bad, that then absolutely. But he started the season strong. He had a really strong first month. And then kind of fell off for a little while, but he picked it back up again in the in the latter like latter half of the year. So, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I just think Jake doesn't doesn't get enough credit for what he does. Yeah, like people go on about uh, Jake Muzzin or about Justin Hall, but Jake Muzzin is the calming force on that pair and allows Justin Hall to do what he does. Like, Jake Mazin's a super underrated defenseman. I think he's a top four in anybody's team in the NHL. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, so... Anyways, that's not where we're going, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get, get into the the failures of the season, I guess. We'll start it off with the biggest award. We'll call it the Broken Heart Award. The least effective player on a North Division team. Who do you have? So we, we said we'd kind of stick to the top six for this because those are the guys who need to be effective to be successful. And I went with Matthew Chuck. This guy's supposed to be the motor of his team. He struggled offensively this year. When he was playing the physical game that he's really, really known for, he seemed to really be forcing it this year. And that, that's not how it looked when he was doing it effectively before. He's also a guy that I thought was going to flourish under Sutter, and he's actually seen quite the reduction in minutes. I just really don't – I don't know what happened to Matt Chuck this year, but if you're a Calgary fan, he broke your heart. Yeah. So were we, were we keeping to top six, or were we doing just consistent players? I don't know. I kept to the top six. You can go okay. wherever you want. I just right. did that for that one because I was like, you know, like I kind of tried to pick a guy I thought like could have been in heart consideration if he had a really good year that went the right. complete opposite way. Okay, no, we're good. I can I can adjust mine to be a top six player. All right, so I was looking at the Oilers for this one because you know, like obviously McDavid, fantastic, Drysaitel, fantastic. Julie Arby's been solid. Um, there's been a few other players that have bounced around on the, those top lines, but the one guy that I didn't see a ton of production out of and that isn't able to play like that defensive role and just doesn't play a very full game or didn't this year anyway was Yamamoto. I think that he had the chance to do a lot more and especially being on a line with Dreisaitl for most of the year that line could have been a lot stronger, but they've ended up having to move Dreisaitl back up to the 
McDavid line for parts of the season just because they weren't getting production and that's the only way they could find production. I think a lot of that falls back on the wings that were on the side of Dreisaitl on that second line. And that would be Yamamoto. Like he did have 20 points on the season, but I would expect more being on a team with those two superstars. Yeah, actually, I felt the same way with the winger on the opposite side. I really thought Dominic Cahoon was going to come in and have a really good year reuniting with his countrymen. They've actually had some magic internationally. And you're right, that second line for the Oilers just didn't work all year. It didn't matter who was on it. Yep. Actually, I had I had Jimmy VC written down if we were talking like any player. Jimmy VC had a huge opportunity on two different teams to prove that he is a consistent and um, productive NHL player, and he hasn't really showed it. No, he was a ghost out there. Yeah, this guy's a cusp NHL player, and I think the chances are you see him lighting up some European league in the next three years. All right, so let's carry down the list and going to defense. Who is your anti-Norris, the failure of defense? So, um, this is why Calgary fans are going to not like you. <laughs> I, I have Tanev. The guy leaves Vancouver after a year where some Vancouver fans would almost make you believe by the way they were posted about him when they lost him that he personally put this team in playoffs. Obviously, I know that's not entirely true, but he looked like a guy that could really settle down an offensive defenseman, allow him to play his game. And I thought you were really going to see him and Hannafin take off and be this really effective deep pair where Hannafin could be more free to have an impact offensively. And you saw none of that. Like, There's a case to say that that's just a horrible signing by the Calgary Flames because it just hasn't worked out for them at all. He doesn't look like a top four for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm curious to see how they adapt to that next year, but or, or what they do with him next year. But, yeah, I, could, I can get behind that. My, uh, my anti-Norris that I picked was Tucker Pullman. I went with Winnipeg. Everyone knows Winnipeg already has a fairly weak defense. Pionk kind of stepped up as a decent defender this year. Morrissey is always there on their top top four. But Tucker Pullman stood out to me as their worst defender just because he's on the ice for 20 minutes a game. He still get like, so they still put him out for between 17 to 20 minutes, but he just does nothing. He has one assist the entire season. Yes, he only played 39 games in the season, but even still... One point over 39 games is not good enough, especially when he still has uh, a negative in the plus-minus column. So I didn't write down what that negative is, but but I know he was negative in plus-minus. So he's on the ice for all this time, and he's just not contributing anything offensively and not enough defensively to to be good enough. So he is my failure of on defense for Winnipeg. Yeah, I can 100% agree with that. So who do you have for the Vesna? 
the worst goaltender in the North? I actually have Holpe. I I thought the ball was in his court. Like they give him the opportunity to be the starter this year in Vancouver. I kind of thought he got some opportunities, and if he'd have been as good as he could have been, they would have continued to shelter Demko just out of the sake of like not shelling a young goalie. We've seen that happen before. I realized Demko actually ended up playing really well. But the ball was in Holby's court, and he went there to try to prove himself as a starter, and it actually totally blew up in his face. Looks like a horrible decision. Looks like he definitely shouldn't have went there. Um, they're in some cap trouble, so I could see him being moved out of there. I don't know who'd be in line to get him, uh, but... Hopey had an opportunity in Vancouver, and Vancouver could have been an all-right team had they got consistent goaltending all year, but the reality is they didn't, and and that's why I'm putting that on Hopey. Yeah, I actually, I was looking at Hopey. He was one of the, the options in my mind, but I ended up going with Matt Murray just because with Hopey, he lost his starting position partly because he wasn't very good, but also because Demko was great. Matt Murray lost his starting position because he was bad. He also he did he did have some injury stuff this year too, right? Yeah, he was injured, but I would agree. Like when he came into the start of the season healthy, you weren't getting what you wanted to get out of him. And actually, the Senators did play pretty well structurally. I kind of thought so. Like, yeah, I actually expected him to lose a lot of games, but put up all right numbers because I do like how they're coached. And I do like how they play. They're just, they don't have enough high-level talent yet, but he didn't really live up to the expectations. Yep. So I've, I'm giving him my uh, failure of the North Vesna. Yeah, that that's actually a pretty clear one. That kind of slipped my mind because I wasn't even really, I kind of just disregarded Ottawa because like I didn't want to just roast them. I kind of picked teams that I thought, could have been good this year, but you're right. Matt Murray takes that cake by a mile. All right. So who do you have for your Calder, the worst rookie that came in and just did so, nothing? So this is actually kind of tough because, like, you just don't hear about rookies that come in and did nothing. So this is where I actually took my leap um, just to show a little bit of, of realisticness with the Leafs from my part. I took Lilligren. This guy was a guy who was thought to go top five in his draft. He ended up getting mono, lost a bunch of weight, struggled, flipped to the Leafs. And uh, I actually don't think I'm the only one, only Leafs fan that thought this guy would get his game back together and actually fast track to the NHL quite quickly. And the Leafs decor is by no means one of the best in the NHL. And he just can't force anybody's hand in order to get in the lineup. And pretty soon you're going to see him be one of these guys that just isn't going to make it. Uh, if you're going to be an offensive defenseman in the NHL, you basically have to be in the top four. And he's getting up there. His ability to prove that he's a top four defenseman is kind of fading away. So Timothy Lilligren, for his lack of his lack of ability to – tease an NHL spot is 
has really kind of made him my anti-Calder for the North Division. All right. So I actually didn't pick an anti-Calder for pretty much the same reason that you said. Like, it's difficult because teams don't talk about their failures, right? You're not going to see as many articles about the guy that didn't succeed, the guy that got sent back down to the AHL because he didn't make the lineup. And I actually forgot about Lilligren, to be completely honest. I didn't even think about him. So... Well, that makes a really good case for my yep. argument. So. Yeah, exactly. So we'll we'll go with that. I thought you were gonna hot take and take Cole Caulfield again. No, I, like I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to be like a have hater because that's such a typical Leaf fan move. Um, I'm just a little bit worried about their team and their structure, but we already talked about that. Yeah. It it does say something though that he's not starting tonight. And then none of their rookies are starting. Yeah, they're going with a bigger, more mature team, which is probably the smart move. But also, I don't know. We'll we'll see how the Leafs pair up against them tonight. I'm excited. All right, so who did you have as your anti-Selkie, your worst defensive forward in the North? I think my worst defensive forward in the North has been widely known as one of the worst uh, defensive forwards in the league for a while, and that's Mark Shifley. Is a great forward, but he doesn't know how to de- play defense, and it doesn't seem like he's improved all that much. So he gets my anti-Selkie. Okay, so I actually thought about going there, and I'm glad you did because I didn't. Okay. Well, like, all you hear about this guy is that he's this big hockey nerd. Well, listen, bud, even the worst players in the NHL, usually they're there because they can play defense. So if if you're such a hockey nerd, how did you not pick up some of these skills? My worst defensive forward in the league is actually going to be uh, Dadloff in Ottawa. There was kind of the one other big contract that they handed out other than Matt Murray. And both of those have kind of blown up in their face. Dadloff looked really good in Florida. I think that's starting to really show off to people how good of a playmaker uh Huberto really is, because it doesn't really seem to matter who plays on his wing. They put the puck in the net. Dadnoff's supposed to be a, a good two-way guy with some really solid offensive puck possession type skills, which I kind of count as defense as defensive play, and he just wasn't able to really show that this year. I actually watched a lot of Ottawa games at the start of the season because I wasn't really sold on the fact that they were going to be bottom feeders like everybody said, obviously that's how it turned out. But um, their team, like we were saying earlier, has kind of an interesting system. And Dadunov, I just never really noticed him. And that's a guy who I actually, like, when he was in Florida, would always make sure was on my fantasy team because he's sneaky, puts off a bunch of points, he doesn't do too many things that uh, are are bad for your fantasy team. And he really just wasn't able to be effective that way in Ottawa this year. Yeah, I actually, I agree with that completely because I had Dadnov as one of my candidates for the Broken Heart, for the uh, the Anti-Heart uh, Award, too. He was one of the guys I was thinking of because you're right, he's just been invisible this year. He's done next to nothing for that team. Um, and, and 
I think we've seen that too because he's fallen down to the third and fourth line rather than being on the first and second line where I think a lot of people expected yeah, I, him. I thought he would have been paired with Stutzel all year just to kind of bring the guy into the league and give him a nice reliable forward to play with. And he's kind of shown that he can't be that guy. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So, Ottawa, I love where you're at as far as your prospects and stuff, but, like, tap the brakes on your free agent signings because your team's still pretty far off, and your last two, as we just talked about, haven't went so hot. (laughs) All right, and who do you have as your anti-King Clancy? Oh, back to Ottawa, but this time I'm going to give them some credit. Brady to Chuck, oh, my God, do I not want to play against this guy every night? if I'm an NHL player. And this guy doesn't seem to care that their team was out of contention for the majority of this year. If this is how he plays when their team's not in contention, I cannot imagine how he plays in playoffs. And Ottawa's on the track, and you're going to get to see that sooner rather than later. And his play style alone is simply why he's my anti-King Clancy award winner. Or, no, anti-Lady Bang is what we're talking about. Oh, that, that was your Lady Bang. Oh, I went. I, I was saying King Clancy. But, yeah, let's do Lady Bang. Sorry, I, I skipped over that one. Okay, so, so yeah. he's your anti-Lady Bang? Yeah, Brady Chuck is my anti-Lady Bang. I just love the way the guy plays. He He's the kind of guy that you hate on somebody else's team, but you want on your own. And not everybody on your team do you want – uh, to be a type of player that's going to win a Selkie. There's something to be said about winning a Selkie, but you don't win a Stanley Cup with a bunch of guys in the race to win a Selkie. So that's why Brady Tuchuk is my anti-Lady Bang. Yep, I agree with that completely, and I kind of wish that I had looked at your list first because I picked the same guy. <laughs> I would have picked Matthew Tuchuk, but um, I, I went, ended up going with Brady too. I think that the anti-Lady Bing would be basically the biggest pest, the the dirtiest player in the North. And I think when it comes down to it, that's Brady Kachuk. He is a pest. So is Matthew. Like, Matthew Kachuk is a pest as well. But this year especially, Brady takes the crown because they've just been out there having a good time. And when he's having a good time, he's just messing around with the other guys on the other team. He's He's chirping all the time. And it's that's what you want to see from an anti anti lady bang wing, winner. Yeah, I hundred percent, I hundred percent agree. Like it's not very often. I think we purposely try to not agree sometimes, but I think this one's just uh, two set in stone. I think if you don't think that he's the guy, then there's obviously a guy in the bottom six on your team that that I don't know about that I don't get to watch. But as far as a guy who actually makes an impact every night. Brady Chuck is that guy. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the King Clancy. So this would be the worst leader, the guy that just isn't able to um, inspire a room, isn't able to do anything to bring, to light a fire under the team. So for me, I went with the other Tuchuk brother, with Matthew Tuchuk on this one. I think that he had a chance to be a leader on this team, and he didn't. 
there was a there was a game earlier in the season where I think Tuchuk got hit and he could have gone to the team and said, "Hey guys, where were you? We need to be a team and we need to fight for each other." And he didn't. And I think that that has really had an impact on this team because he could bring a level of grit to the team. He could help light a fire under the other guys so that guys like Monahan can start making some better, bigger hits. Guys like Lucic, even, had not the hardest hitting season that he's ever had. And I think that Matthew Kachuk has a chance to, or had a chance to really be a leader on this team, and he gave it away. So he gets my anti-King Clancy, not a leader award. So uh, I don't know if we just decided to agree today, or if we both are just jealous that we don't have a Chuck on the Leafs, <laughs> but that's exactly where I was at. Matthew Chuck, first off, Calgary fans, I've been listening to you for three years. This is now Matthew Chuck's team. He's the future captain of this team. We've been hearing this uh, since he broke into the league, basically, with how he's the motor to their team. And this year, if they really needed someone to step up and be the motor, it, this was the year. They had a good chance. They'd added some pieces. The big problem they'd had was goaltending. They thought they'd solve that with Markstrom. I still think they might have. But the motor they'd had for the past two years in Matthew Chuck wasn't there. He wasn't the same player. Like I said, his physical play seemed kind of forced. I don't know what happened to this guy, but I thought he was going to flourish under Sutter, and he actually kind of faltered. This is really scary for me if I'm a Calgary fan because their team is about to have be forced to decide who their core pieces are with Goudreau's contract coming to an end at the end of next season. And they have no idea who they are, and they have no idea which players are their core and who they need to keep moving forward. They thought that that player was Matthew Chuchuk, but this year he's kind of put some doubt in my mind as far as that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. He also burnt my fantasy team, so I might be a little bit bitter, but... <laughs> All right, let's go into the Anti-Bill Masterson Award. So this is the award given to the player that had the game handed to them, had no adversity all season, got a fairly easy, easy buy, and just got to play the game, didn't have a care in the world. Who do you have for that? So I actually have Jasper Kakaniemi. Uh This guy has had every chance to prove He's a top six center in the NHL. Got drafted uh, sooner than people expected, uh, going third overall to the Canadians. A lot of people thought the Canadians were crazy. Came in as a rookie, played really well. Kind of made a lot of other GMs think that they might have missed this guy, honestly. But the center ice position is weak for the Habs, and he can't force his way to being a consistent top six player, even though he's been given ample opportunity this guy really could have changed the fortunes of the Habs if he was able to step up and be a consistent top six player this year but he hasn't and if anything his confidence has kind of been shaken 
by his lack of ability to do so. And he's been in the NHL for, for three years now uh, because you've rushed him and because he looked like he was ready as an 18-year-old. But I haven't really seen him progress. He's just as good, if not a little bit worse, because he's losing his confidence as he was as an 18-year-old. And if I'm a Habs fan, that's really disheartening because this guy got me really excited. Yeah, I can see that. So for mine, I actually went back to Ottawa and went back to Brady Kachuk. I think that his entire season, he's had no pressure on him. They knew they weren't going to be a fantastic team. They knew they probably weren't going to play in the playoffs. He didn't really have to play through, through much. He just got to go out, play the game of hockey, hang out with his buddy, Timmy Stutzla, joke around, have fun. And he had to face no major challenges because any game that could have been a challenge, they didn't really have to care about. They just went out and played. And I think that that's, it's a good thing. It, it's as much as it's an anti-award, it's actually helped Brady Tuchuk develop this year and get even better because he hasn't had that pressure on his back to be, no, we need you to be this winning top line player. It's just been like, all right, go play. Here's our system, learn it, play with it, but play your game. And he excelled. So I'm giving that to him because he didn't have to face any adversity and no major challenges throughout the season. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited. It looks like there's going to be a Battle of Ontario that's Mm -hmm. different than any Battle of Ontario that I've seen in my life pretty soon. Yeah, that's had Dubas not done so much with the Leafs. I actually had Pierre Dorian as a potential candidate for GM of the year as well, just because he's done so much to to get prospects for this team. Like, So maybe Pierre Dorian's not a GM of the year this year, but give it three years when all these prospects come to fruition, Pierre Dorian could be the GM of the year in Ottawa. Honestly, Pierre Dorian doesn't get enough credit for his ability to um, handle the ownership that they have in Ottawa. Melnick has been like, listen, we're not paying so-and-so. And usually when you have to trade away a star player, you get robbed. And the only time I feel like they got robbed might have been Mark Stone because he's just continuously uh, continued to be just as good as he was when he was there. Uh, and Brandstrom hasn't really turned into an NHL player yet, but this guy is a great GM. And because he's in Ottawa, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. All right. So speaking of a great GM, let's go to a terrible GM. Who do you have for the anti-Jim Gregory Award, worst GM in the North. All right, so this is another reason why Calgary's going to hate me. Brad Tree Living really liked you, but you fucked it up this year. You brought in all these guys, and your team was was already a playoff team, and these were supposed to be the pieces that allowed you to be an effective playoff team, and here you are playing meaningless games against Vancouver a couple days ago while other teams are in playoffs. This does not look good for Brad Tree Living. They brought in some pieces that they thought were playoff-type players while 
guess what? If you got playoff type players, you got to make it to the playoffs, and that's not something they were able to do. No, but I do find it interesting that you bring up uh, Vancouver because I went with Jim Bennings. I did last was it last week or two weeks ago? I threw a little love his way and thought that maybe his two year plan would be okay, but. And I, I still do think that. I think that in a few years, Vancouver might be okay. But this season, he didn't do anything to help his team. It almost seemed like this season he just knew was a wash, threw his hands up in the air and said, all right, fuck it. Just play, play, do what you want to do. I don't care. I'm not going to change anything because this season's a write-off. And I think that you can't do that as a GM. You have to always be adjusting. You have to be looking to fill gaps. You have to be looking to rewrite the books, move some money around. And it seemed like Jim Bennings this year just didn't do any of that. He just took a year off and relaxed. Yeah, I honestly, Jim Benning has made some questionable moves over the past few years. But the team has continued to be good, so he's got to fly under the radar. And by the sound of what's going on in Vancouver, he gets to keep his job because they don't want to spend more money. So they don't want to spend money on a GM that they're not that's not actually doing his duties in order to hire a new one. So Jim Benning has another year to try to prove that that he's the architect of the Vancouver Canucks when they're successful. Um, but their bottom six players get paid a lot. Everyone's talking about it. So I did a little bit of a dive the other day. Two mil, three and a half. Well, where's all this money for Pedersen and Hughes going to come from? And I don't think anyone's lining up to take your overpaid bottom six forwards. So, (laughs) Tim Benning, you've already been doing a horrible job, and things don't look that bright for you. Yep. Yep. All right, so... We'll wrap this up with the anti-Jack Adams, the worst coach in the North. I went with Calgary. I went with Daryl Sittler. I think that he had a chance to come in and reinvent this team. He wasn't successful, but he kept trying, and he kept trying, and he kept trying, and he was bashing his head against the wall, and I'm sure he's still sitting at home bashing his head against the wall, trying to figure out how to make a team that is not physical, physical. And you can't do that. You need to be able to adjust. You need to be able to think on the on your feet. And he's just not able, like Daryl Sittler isn't able to adjust his mindset for the team he has in front of him. And the team in front of him isn't adjusting their mindset to Daryl's mindset. So there's just this void between them that isn't going to get filled until one or the other changes. And I think that a lot of that falls on Sittler because you got to adapt. You got to learn with the game. And he doesn't seem like he's doing that right now. So we do agree, but you said Daryl Sittler twice. So I'm going to tease you a little bit about it. Oh, shit. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we totally agree. Um, First off, this team wasn't built for Sutter in the first place. And I think you should have known that coming in. I also don't know how good of a coach you are if you can only be effective 
coaching a team that's built a certain way. I just sat here for my uh, Coach of the Year award and said it goes to Quenville because he seems to be able to evaluate players and find ways to have a system that allows all those players to be the most effective without taking away from other players. And Sutter is the exact opposite of that. He needs a certain type of player to be successful. And some of the players that he needs to be successful are no longer available in the NHL or are widely less available in the NHL. To find a big body that can skate with today's NHLers, that is a high price to pay. And if that's the kind of players he needs for his team to be successful, then he better hope that Melnick doesn't want to pay Brady to Chuck and that him and Matthew have a really good relationship and he can have both Chuck brothers because the types of player he needs to be successful as an NHL coach are harder and harder to come by every day, every year. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely are. All right, I guess that wraps up our anti-awards. Uh, let let us know what you think about those ones for sure. We're at TFanalysts on Twitter because I feel like the, that could create uh, some fun discussion online about the worst players in the, in the North, at least. But now I guess we've got a old segment we're coming back to. We haven't done locked in or left field in a while, so let's bring that back. We've got a, a new list of questions, most of them pertaining to the hockey playoffs, and let's roll with it. We'll start with the first question. Will Matthew score 60 goals by the end of the playoffs? I think I've got that as likely. So where we're at now, he would... He's at 40 goals now, so he needs 20 more goals. He could get that by the end of the second round. Yes, actually, I have it as a lock. I, I see the Leafs going deep in playoffs. Uh, I see them definitely getting out of the North Division. And if the Leafs do that, which I believe they will, Austin Matthews has to be an elite-level scorer like he's shown himself to be. So, if all those things are true, which I think they are, or I hope they are. Matthews will score 60 goals this season. All right. Sounds good. So, sticking with the Leafs, will Frederick Anderson start a game? Also, this is a lock. Um, the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of goalies change in the playoffs. Um, I think that's exactly why you're going to see Freddie Anderson. The other thing is, a lot of people are acting super scared about seeing Freddie Anderson like he hasn't been the Leafs starting goalie for the more than the past couple of years. So I'm not really that scared to see the guy we expected to get us here play in the playoffs. Of course, he didn't get us here, but nobody could have foreseen that. But the reality is he's a great goalie, and I think he'll get in in playoffs at some point. I've got it as likely. I think that he probably will get into the playoffs at some point, but I would also love to see Campbell just go on a on a absolute marathon and go on a tear into a deep playoff run. So I've got it as likely in hopes that we don't need him and Campbell can just be lights out the entire series 
for the entire playoffs. All right, so the next one we have, Will McDavid have a point on 75% of the points for the Oilers this playoff run? So I've actually got that as unlikely, which is maybe a hot take a little bit, but I really think that at this point in the season, teams are going to start to have the book on McDavid and have been studying it and studying it and studying it, and they know that the key to stopping the Oilers is stopping McDavid. So they're going to focus so much on shutting him down that Dreisaitl and Puliarvi and other, like, the periphery players are going to have to pick up the scoring because McDavid is almost always going to be double teamed. So I think it's going to be really hard for him to get a point on 75% of the points they score or of the goals they score. So I actually have this as a lock mostly because last night's Oilers performance kind of made me sick. And I think that he'll probably have uh, that kind of impact because I'm really starting to question whether the Oilers make it out of the first round. And I think if they only make it to the first or, or second round, then, then that's probably a likelihood that can, can happen based on what you've seen McDavid do all year. I do agree with what you're saying a little bit, but I'm not really sure that they're not trying everything they can do to shut him down every night. And reality is not very many teams have been able to do it. No, not at all. All right, so the next one. Um, same series, but will Hellebuck have a shutout in the playoffs? So I actually have this as unlikely. I love Hellebuck. I think he's the best goalie in the NHL right now uh, as far as like ability to steal a game. I just think he's still in the prime of his career where some of the other guys that you would say that about, they're kind of uh, getting closer to the back nine of their career, and and that's going to lower their ability to just straight up steal a game. But I still think that the Jets just don't have the decor that are going to allow their goalie to get a shutout, especially in a high-powered North division. Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's For that reason, I've got it as a lost cause. I think this first series, there's so much power between Dreisaitl and McDavid. You're almost guaranteed to get a goal in every game. And then if they make it through to the next series, hopefully it would be the Leafs and the Jets. And same goes. Like The Leafs just have so much scoring depth that it would be very, very hard to to get a shutout and I don't see them getting out of the Canadian division. So that would be the end of it. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. All right. And I threw this, this question in here just sort of as a, a fun one to see where it could go. Um, does Chara get in a fight with an old teammate? So I have this on as unlikely, not because I don't want to see it happen, but because who on the Bruins is going to fight Chara? <laughs> yeah, I, I just right. don't I don't know who that would be. And the one guy who might have been able to do it because he has a similar size would have been Brandon Carlo, but he's kind of had concussion problems recently. So I can't see the Bruins wanting him to go out there and get punched in the head. And 
be honest, I haven't followed the Bruins too closely. I don't even know how much he's playing right now because he's had some injury concerns this year. Yeah. I've got it as unlikely as well, as much as I would love to see it too. I don't know if Chara wants to fight one of those guys. I think that, like, yeah, he'll be he'll be cross-checking them after the whistle and be physical with all their players, but I don't think he's actually going to get into any fights at all. I just don't think that he thinks there's a need for it at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. So we're going to move out of hockey um, for the next couple questions, and then we'll go into our players of the week. Do you think the Raptors keep Lowry? Obviously, things are kind of open-ended. Uh, we saw a little bit of his press conference yesterday. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think you see Rap uh, Lowry in a Raptors jersey next season? I've got it as likely. And, and I think that really is just sort of a, a gut feeling. Overdrive had um, Nick Nurse on the other day, and he was talking about how much of an impact Lowry has on the young guys and stuff like that. And I said at the start of the season, I think it would be good to re-sign him and just keep him as a veteran presence. But that being said, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, um, Masai Ujiri did a press conference and kind of talked about how they want to focus on their young core. So I don't know, but I'm going to call it likely just because I think I want to see it one more, one more year. Yeah, I agree. I, I honestly think I want to see Kyle Lowry a Raptor for as long as he's in the NBA. Um, I, I have it as likely. I think he just brings things uh, that are hard to teach, hard to find in other players. Sacrifices his body. He's got a ridiculous compete level. I love the guy. To me, if you're a basketball or if you're a fan of sports in Canada, you don't really like basketball. Kyle Lowry's the kind of guy you can get behind. He he just he's a basketball player, but he's got that hockey player mentality, and I think Canadian fans really get behind Kyle Lowry. Yeah. I'd agree with that. So, talking about Canadian fans, a lot of Canadian kids last summer didn't get to play sports. We're coming up to sort of a breaking point in all of this where people are starting to get vaccinated. Things will probably start to open up sooner rather than later. Do you think that kids will play, will play sports in Ontario this summer? I have that as a lock. I think they have to. I don't think you can keep doing this to kids anymore. I I understand what the problems are, but I'm I'm really getting worried about people's mental health at this point. There's a lot of people around me who I've known to be very strong my whole life who are really starting to struggle. And these are adults who can actually tell you what they're feeling. These These kids have been suffering for over a year now and I was talking to a buddy the other day and we all know somebody who graduated high school because they needed a certain amount of grades to play a certain sport that they really cared about. And I think that that's forgotten a lot. And I think it's about time we didn't forget it. We got to find a way to bring back some sort of sports this summer. It's only fair. You only have a certain amount of years of being a kid and 
before you know it, you're an adult. You got to make good decisions, and maybe you can't play sports. So we got to find a way to make this work. So I have it as a lock, mostly just because I really want to see it happen. Yep, I've got that one as a lock as well. I think that it's important for kids to get out, play sports, be physical. It's just, like you said, it's it's a mental health grind that everyone's going through right now. And um, sports and exercise are a big way to to get out of that and help socialize. And it's not like you can't play some sports fairly safely. Like, you could go out, you can play volleyball you could play badminton you could go like there's a lot of outdoor sports that you can play hell you could probably even play baseball fairly safely and i think you gotta open some of that stuff back up just for the fun just for fun like kids need to go out and have fun so i think that that uh that's a lock so do you think nate pearson is going to be an impact player consistently for the Blue Jays at some point this season? I think so. Yeah, I think that that's likely. Um, I'm not going to make it a lot because I don't know if he's going to be a consistent starter, but I think that he will He will be at some, at some point. Um, he's definitely going to come back into the lineup. I would assume they're going to start him as a reliever and transition him to be a starter, but... I think that there is a solid chance that by the end of the season, he is maybe through third in our rotation, maybe fourth, but I think that it's likely he gets there. So I actually have, this is a lost cause and I'm super disappointed to be saying it, but the guy's a prospect and with how baseball works, he's still a prospect for a couple, couple years. If he doesn't make the major leagues, and I think that might be the right plan of action for the Blue Jays. Plain and simple, if this guy is going to be as, as impactful as a starter as you think he could be, then you need to solve these injury problems and get him 100% healthy so he can be that impact player. Uh, people can go on about Hunjin Ryu and how he uh, doesn't go deep into very many games. But the reality is he is actually there for a lot of games. And there's something to be said about your impact starters consistently being ready to go game in and game out. And if Nate Pearson's going to be as good as a lot of people say he's going to be, he's going to have to be able to do that. So I think you focus this year on getting him healthy. And uh, we tried to transition him from being a reliever kind of last year into this year. I almost wonder if you don't leave him to be a triple-A starter until he can come right in the major leagues and be a starter because transitioning just doesn't seem to be working for him. I don't know whether he can't be ramped up properly or what's going on there. So I'm going to leave this as a lost cause, mostly because I'm hoping the uh, Blue Jays take a safe approach with Nate Pearson. Yeah, and I can see them doing that too, especially this year because they're in a place where They've got a decent, at least top three rotation. And especially their ace this year has been Hanjin Ryu. And that's why he is my player of the week this week. So I'll transition into the players of the week with Hanjin Ryu. He's just coming off of a great May. He's got 
three back-to-back wins in May, and that culminating in a shutout win against the Red Sox the other night. Went seven innings, went super deep, only had four hits in the game, no earned runs, um, and he just had a had a great outing, and he had he's had a great May, and he's been getting deeper into games where like we like you mentioned that's one of the things that was was a question with him and it seems like that's something that he is really working on and it's something that he's developing and adding to his game or adding back to his game I guess I should say because he had it and then he sort of lost it for a while and he was doing five innings six innings five innings and and couldn't get that longevity in a game and he made it to seven innings while throwing a lot of pitches too. Like I was chatting with my dad um, after, after that game. And my dad said he was in the fourth inning and had already thrown 60 odd pitches. So if you're already throwing that many pitches early in the game, the ability to keep going and then go into the later innings and still get shut out or, um, still get strikeouts because he ended up with seven strikeouts in that game is huge for the Jays. And is it really boosts, um, it boosts the spirits of the team and it makes the, the hitters go out and be like, hell yeah, we can do this. And I think we saw that because they won eight, nothing against the best team in the AL East right now. That's they're in a race with. So it was a really important win. And HJR was able to do it. Yeah, I wish they could have strung two wins together there. If they'd have got that one last night, that would have been huge too. Yeah, Stripling just didn't have it last night though. No, it wasn't going his way. He looked like he was kind of fighting it all game. That's all right. He's been half decent too, so um, he's allowed a night off once in a while. Yeah, you're definitely right. He has had it this year. So for my player of the week, I'm going with, and I hope I say this correctly because the guy deserves the credit, Liam Draxel. He's a Canadian tennis player. He currently ranks number one in the NCAA. So that is a huge accomplishment. He just beat the number one ranked player most recently to take the number one ranking. Ranking. Uh, he wasn't able to play in a lot of the big college tournaments last year because of COVID. So this uh, should have been his, his second year of kind of coming into his own, but this is really the first year he's really got a full college tennis season. He's really taken it and ran with it. College tennis isn't the typical route for a Canadian, and uh, Canadians have struggled to to stay healthy in tennis and, um, you know, continue being dominant one game to the next. So I wonder that this guy taking uh, an alternative route for a Canadian might not allow him to ramp up a little more slowly and become that dominant tennis player that Canadian tennis has been looking for, a guy who can consistently play at a high level. And uh, this is a step in the right direction. And congrats to Liam for being the number one ranked NCAA tennis player. Yeah, yeah, I really like his story. What um, I was reading about him, and it said that he actually chose to go to college because the college – or I think it was the University of Kentucky, I think is where he went, basically said, hey, you're not that good. You can do this, this, and this to improve your game. Come here and we'll fix you. Rather than 
where a lot of colleges, when they're trying to recruit somebody to come to their program, will be like, oh, no, you're the best. You can do this. And he said the reason he went there is because he he knows that he's not the best yet and he didn't want to go somewhere that he wouldn't be challenged. And the fact that he chose to go to that university to be challenged and to improve his game even more and, and help develop his game. So I think that it's really great for him and it'll be cool to see his career develop as he gets out of college and starts on like the, the world series. Yeah. I don't know how long uh, you would hang around as the number one ranked college player before you would go pro. Uh, He would obviously finish out this season, but if he can stay the number one ranked college player all season, I don't know how long you would uh, continue being an unpaid athlete, but all the best to him, and I hope we hear a lot of cool headlines um, in the future. Because Canadian college tennis players is not something I had ever heard about until the last couple of days. So this is kind of an interesting story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, well, I guess that can wrap up episode 14. It was a very hockey-heavy episode, but uh, we'll come to you next week with some NBA talk because the the playoffs are starting shortly. We're coming into the last night of the play-in tournament and then we'll get into into our playoff bracket. So Brett and I are going to we'll write down our picks and then we'll talk about them next week for the first round of the playoffs um, of the NBA playoffs. So that's something that you guys have look, have to look forward to next week. I don't know, Brett, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be on episode 14, and there's so many playoff sports right now. I hope everybody's enjoying it, and it's really exciting for us to have a lot of things to talk about, and I think we better soak it in, because we might run out of things to talk about in the summer, so I hope you're enjoying this, and uh, hopefully you keep listening. Yeah, and that's actually perfect, because so... If you guys have topics for us to talk about in the summer, because we're getting to the point where sports are going to start slowing down over the next couple of months once these playoffs end, so we'll we'll try and keep it going, but we'll we'll definitely need some topics. So if you've got any minor leagues that are happening in your in your regions or anything like that that you think that we might like and we might want to talk about, then send us a tweet at tfanalysts or shoot us a DM on Instagram at the, uh, the Fanalyst Podcast. And we'd be happy to, to talk about any sports that you guys love. Um, that's sort of the point of this podcast is to talk about the sports we all love. So interact with us. Let us know what you think. Um, tell us if you liked what we did today with the anti-awards and send us some new locked in or left field questions and enjoy listening to the podcast we've been we've enjoyed doing it so i hope you guys have enjoyed listening uh we'll see you next week